Welcome to Coach Your Brains Out, the show that explores learning from the top minds in volleyball and beyond. With your hosts, John Mayer, Billy Allen, Andrew Fuller, and Nils Nielsen. Today we're lucky to have on the show former BYU head coach and uh, partner owner of Gold Medal Squared, Chris McGowan. Chris, thanks for joining us. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks, guys. So today our topic is scouting reports, but before we get into that, can you give us a little recap of your coaching experience at the recent World uh, World Cup tournament in Japan? Yeah, it was World Championships, and uh, I was with the Netherlands, and um, I've spent the last couple summers with them in kind of various roles, mostly just filling in where I can. Jamie Morrison, who was formerly with USA Men back in 2008, as far as, yeah, back as far as 2008, he was with the guys when Hugh was coaching there. And then when Hugh flipped over with the women, Jamie went with him. And uh, Jamie's been on staff then with Hugh twice with Karch. Um, so he's been around the USA programs a long time. And then the opportunity came up to be a head coach for the Dutch women. And uh, and Jamie jumped on that and uh, asked me to kind of be involved. And I was excited to help there. Um, it's uh, a really physical, talented team and a bunch of really, really nice kids, just exceedingly good people there um, in the program, top to bottom. And, uh, and so I've been involved with them for a couple summers now. And at the World Champs, um, Jamie had had a kind of a full staff on the bench. I'd been with him on the bench here and there, but uh, he kind of had a full staff on the bench and needed somebody to do some scouting of the other pools. And so for the first couple weeks of the tournament, I was uh, in the counter pools. I was off in a pool where eventually they'd cross over with Serbia and Brazil. And then uh, the next pool that they'd cross over with was going to be China and uh, and ultimately USA. And so I was uh, scouting that pool for a while. And then and then I reconnected with them back when we started playing the final six and then the final four. So, um, yeah, it was a great experience and it was a it was a long grind. Uh, if you've had anybody on that will talk about that kind of tournament, it's it's. Um, it's one of the more challenging things I think um, in all of sport because most teams will go out there for a week ahead of the tournament. And then it's probably another solid three plus weeks, um, maybe even four weeks of, of play if you play all the way through. So we went out, I think the 23rd, 24th of September, we flew from Amsterdam and then I got back to, the states on the 21st of October. So a little, about a month's worth of, uh, of travel there. And yeah, like I said, it was, it's, it's really demanding physically. Um, you're just, you're on the road for an entire month and, you know, you just to maintain physical and mental focus is, uh, it's a, you know, to be able to do that and do it well, um, is a really, really tough thing. And, and I've, you know, just whole new level of respect. That was my first world championships and whole new level of respect for the athletes and the coaches and the staff that grinded out through the whole thing. Yeah. And for that tournament, um, what sort of scouting reports did you guys create? What did it look like? What were you, uh, how did you help the team? Yeah. So 
I wish I could have helped the team more, you know, but uh, I think my role was um, was mostly just make sure we were getting film uh, or video of everybody that we needed to. And then, so I would, I would, you know, set up the cameras up, uh, record the matches, upload those to, uh, to Volumetrics. And then from Volumetrics, uh, the Netherlands staff that had a lot of expertise with data volley would, would grab the film, break it down in the format that was familiar to the Dutch. So everybody with data volley probably has kind of their own little shorthand and there are some defaults, but if you're, if you're recording a match, what you call a set and how you reference things is a little bit different from probably program to program. And so it wasn't enough to just have a generic breakdown of the match. They needed somebody to break it down in, you know, the Dutch style. And so they had, they've got two really, really high quality um, full-time scouts. Um, and it turns out one of them, his wife was having a baby right during the tournament. And so that's why I ended up in that role. Uh, they were like, yeah, you know, we don't have room for you here, but this guy Willem is going to have uh, his first baby. And we figure that's probably a bigger deal than being with us in Japan. So if you don't mind just doing everything he would do, except the actual breakdown, that would be great. So I was uploading film and then they would break it down. And then I would re-retrieve all of the data files and then start watching along with the rest of the staff and prepping to put a scouting report in place. And I think it was, if you've been around a high level program, um, you know, scouting reports end up being uh, somewhat the same. Uh, You know, there's, I think commonalities across a lot of really good programs that I've been around that the scouting reports kind of tend to have, the same uh, information, maybe presented a little bit differently uh, visually or presented a little bit differently in terms of the way things go, but it's effectively, you know, here's how we want to defend their offense in general and then specific to rotations. And then here's how we want to attack with our offense against their defense. Here's how they're going to defend us. And here's some opportunities for our offense in again, generally, and then by rotation. And then we look at, you know, some serving trends and how we want to receive and then some position specific stuff relative to maybe how the middles want to run our defense a little bit. But uh, it's, I would say our scouting reports were pretty traditional um, in terms of just the content, the look and feel, uh, the one thing that I think we did that was perhaps maybe a little unique was we used uh, Joe Trinzi's heat map application and made a lot of heat maps uh, of opponents uh, versus um, traditional line charts where, you know, if you're charting an opponent, you would say, all right, they're going to hit the ball and you just draw a line from, you know, where they hit it from to where they hit it to. And pretty soon you've got this kind of, group of lines that are that are in place and that's the visual representation but rather than use uh, all those kind of directional lines we ended up using uh heat maps to visualize hitters and uh, our athletes seem to like that quite a bit yeah a little less messy what uh what um what were some serving trends you guys picked up on and i guess how did you um apply that to your strategy 
So I think one of the things you find at this level, and and it's remarkable to me, that was one of the things that was most remarkable to me maybe is I came back from the world championships and immediately started watching NCAA Division One uh, women's volleyball. And there was a, a, a stark difference between the level of serving at the world championships and uh, and the NCAA, you know, and just Division One, and even good teams, uh, really good teams, um, just at the Division One level, the serving is so much easier, uh, and you know the the error rates are about the same. Um, you know, I think good. It's it's been really interesting. You see, good Division One programs don't miss a lot of serves and they've done a really good job in that part of the game of keeping the serving game pretty clean. But you'll see that the same exact same thing in terms of error levels uh, with the international teams, but the degree of difficulty, you know, the, the velocity the trajectory, they're just hitting low flat floating serves consistently that are really, really tough and they can serve it pretty much anywhere they want to. If there's a jump floater, they can put it, you know, they can put it in their spot nine times out of ten, and uh, and so that that was one of the things is you're scouting servers um, with a jump floater. There might be some kind of, you know, something unique to maybe one player on the team that jump floats, and maybe she's a lefty or. Maybe she really likes to, you know, mix in some short serves or, you know, or maybe this is really her, her favorite serve. And so you see a little bit more of that. But more than anything, they they don't have trends. They just go at what they perceive are the weak spots and they go at them relentlessly and they're really consistent. And so um, I think it's just more than anything, we wanted to get our athletes kind of seeing some film of, Here's what you can expect, and here's what this player looks like. <clears throat> and so the video aspect of it, just being able to see this see this opponent a little bit ahead of time and visualize that a little bit, I think was valuable. And then the spike servers, on the other hand, they were all highly patterned. And that was one of the interesting areas uh, for me as I looked at um, – you know, the tournament and some of the trends that were coming out of the tournament, one of them was that there were actually a couple of effective spike servers. And if you talked with the USA staff from, you know, the last two quads, uh, they looked at this really extensively. And even their best, you know, jump servers, their best spike servers were actually more effective as jump float servers than they were as spike servers. And so, you know, even the ones that were the best in the world, they were the best jump server in the world, but our, our jump float is actually still more effective than our jump spike in terms of, you know, overall point scoring efficiency. That was one of the kind of um, things that came out of, I think, the last two quads. And so that's something that I've held on to pretty strongly is just, hey, this jump float is going to be maybe the most effective serve. But we saw a couple athletes, maybe a handful um, at this last world championships where they, they had a really, really effective spike serve and they were scoring points for their teams in pretty big chunks, um, when they kind of got a rhythm going and, and hit their spike serve. And so when that, when, if that was the case, then 
then you really wanted to kind of dial in on those trends. And usually they can hit it in, in two spots and really one really well and maybe a secondary spot that they kind of could cut it to if they wanted to. But, uh, you know, they all kind of had their wheelhouse. And so you'd want to chart that pretty good and see, all right, this is really where that serve's going to go. And then rotationally, um, if we get a certain matchup, how do we want to try to play that? Do we want our libero to kind of, you know, poach into that seam a little more? Do we want to think about putting four passers out there in uh, in our rotations, three and four, <clears throat> or maybe even one, three and four, if we could, you know, and just how are we going to match up against that kind of that serve? I suppose see it visually. Where is it going to hit? And then what are the matchups we want with our passers? What makes the, the spike serve effective or, or why would you want someone to do it? Do they have to have a big enough arm or is it that they can get some kind of like funky movement on it? Those two things, big enough arm, simply big enough arm uh, is kind of the number one thing. And then just error rates, you know, and so that was one of the things that the USA women were looking at was, you know, hey, maybe we're scoring uh, points on a lot of these serves, but we're missing too many. Uh, to really, you know, have it be effective. And so that was, you'd see from Serbia and Italy to some degree, Russia a little bit, um, if their spike servers were not feeling it that day, they'd have them stay down and jump float. And it was just kind of this rhythm thing. Are they in the rhythm of this serve and uh, and hitting it hard? And uh, that was it. Just you have to really beat it uh, against these teams because the passers are so accomplished that if you're hitting a 50 mile an hour serve, it's just this nice, easy down ball. Thank you. You know, kind of thing. You got to get the the speeds up there pretty good. And then you got to hit it in a lot. So those were kind of the two things there was uh, Serbia's um, really good opposite was a lefty. And so her serve tended to have that kind of reverse bite. If you, if you're a passer and so it moved, Mm -hmm you know, a little bit differently. And so that, that actually created some challenge too, because it's just nobody in our gym in the Netherlands, for example, uh, could hit a serve like that. And even if we had some, you know, coaching staff or some of the other guy athletes there in the Netherlands come in and hit spike serves at us just to get, you know, the, the, the kids, some spike serve reps, nobody was a lefty. So you just, you didn't quite get that same feel. So, so she created some challenges just cause that it moved a little differently coming off a left-hander. Yeah. Well, well the lefties are always better. So I yeah, think that's right. just, uh, <laughs> yeah. so back to uh, the scouting reports, I'm wondering kind of what, what do you guys feel is the, a big enough sample size? I know you have volumetrics, uh, but how much would you pull? And then for say, say maybe a high school team that doesn't have access to volumetrics, what would you, say is a good enough sample size to feel confident in your, your report. So uh, I wasn't the one that was prepping all of those reports. Um, that was kind of <coughs> coordinated with Jamie and, uh, and the other scout ran and, and one of the assistants typically um, Alessandro was uh, he's, uh, an Italian guy that came over, did a really, really good job for that group. I thought, um, as an assistant coach uh, in his first year there this summer. But uh, they typically would coordinate um, the scouting reports. And then Ilko was the other uh, assistant that was that had a big role in that. And 
So I can tell you from my experience with uh, when we were doing scouting reports with BYU, the guys, um, much more than five matches and uh, and the data, it, it, the, the shot charts started to become too crowded, if that makes sense. There were too many lines. <laughs> on everything and it, it, it started to be hard to, to read. So we thought kind of five, four or five matches of data was kind of the magic number. Um, I, I felt like, you know, for me as a coach, as I got better and I was watching film, I could have a handle on a hitter within 20 to 30 swings, but we usually liked about, um, a hundred swings worth of data to really, really kind of dial in everything. And, uh, and the challenge of course is when you, when you get match film data, um, or you're pulling data from a match, uh, you'll, you'll get to a hundred swings on some athletes really fast. And then, you know, and then it'll take you 10 matches to get to hundred swings on the middle, but only three matches to get to hundred swings on the pin hitters, you know, kind of thing. And so that's, that's, I suppose, really the challenge is, is player by player, you know, you get a big enough sample size with, you know, X number of films for this player or X number of matches from this player, but you really need two X in order to get that, uh, that same sample size from somebody else. And so, um, you know, depending on how significant an offensive uh, player was or what kind of presence they had, or if there was something that we really wanted to know, we might generate uh, data on an individual, uh, you know, just that individual as opposed to, um, you know, a whole team. Hopefully that makes sense. Yeah, and would you ever, at BYU, say, would you ever present the scouting report by position or was it always to, to the whole team? We did both. We would do both, and we did both at the Netherlands. It was, you know, here's kind of how we want to do things overall as a team, and then and then take the the athletes by position and just remind them of kind of hey, within your position group, here are some here are the kind of really critical things. And have you ever had players who don't want to know a bunch of details on a scouting report and they just want to play? And if so, I guess how do you handle those players? So this is, um, <laughs> so you ever, you remember the scene from Jerry Maguire where, uh, where Tom Cruise's character writes his little manifesto at the start of the film and, right. and he, and he, and he writes in the notes, he's like fewer clients, less money, you know, and he, and he puts it and he binds it and he sends it all out and everybody smiles and then he gets fired like the next week. So <laughs> this is. This is, I think, where I'm like, I'm, I'm writing, this is, I think I'm writing Jerry Maguire's manifesto here in that I think the amount of data that we as coaches have access to has allowed way, way, way too much information to creep into our reports. And so um, the last year I've been evangelizing to anybody that will listen to me. And I think they all just kind of smile and yeah, this is great. And then go off and, you know, <laughs> basically think I'm crazy, but um, I've been trying to say, Hey, you know what? Um, we could, we could stand to give 
way, way, way less information than we're giving in our scouting reports because um, one of the things I'm finding is it's just if you think about, hey, I need to be able to go play kind of unfettered mentally and my kind of, you know, best self out on the court, it's really hard to make that happen if I've got a lot of kind of rules or a lot of, you know, checklists that I'm trying to run through mentally every time a play unfolds. And so what I, I guess to answer your question, are there some players that don't want to know anything? Sure. That's, it's really exceptional that they're, they're players that like, Hey, don't tell me anything. I just want to go play. I think everybody recognizes and say, you know, some amount of information is, is good here and, and preparing for an opponent is probably the smart thing to do. And, and I, and it's worth some points every set for me to kind of know their tendencies and, and to be in better improved spots uh, and have improved strategies. And so the, the, trap I think that we as coaches and and a lot of times athletes fall into is not that we don't want to know too little it's that we want to know too much and now we burden ourselves mentally with all this information and it it becomes really hard to digest it especially in a format where you're playing um so we would have pool matches where we'd play you know three or four matches in five nights kind of thing and you're playing back to back to back to back, maybe a day off, you know, back to back, day off, back to back kind of thing. And the amount of information that the athletes have to learn for each opponent and then kind of basically dump. And then, you know, and then I got to relearn a new opponent. Um, it's, it's really challenging. And, and as I watched our athletes play at BYU and I watched our athletes play at the Netherlands and I've watched lots of athletes play in these you know, different environments, um, I could see, you know, hey, we've gone over this. You're a smart kid. You're a good volleyball player. We've covered this material, yet it still isn't working its way into your game. And I'm having to remind you from the sidelines, remember, hey, this is what we're doing. And uh, and to some degree, I think um, it was the athletes were – it was limiting their ability to perform freely and wholly and to let their instincts and their experience take over and really be this fluid dynamic, you know, Hey, I see the game. I read, I react kind of volleyball player. And it was, you know, I was, I was hamstrung to some degree by all of this information that that's going through my head and all of this data. Now was I lying on this player? Was I angled? Did I step left? when they ran this play or did I step right? And in this rotation, was I, what did I step up or, you know, was it the other rotation and was it only when they did this? And now what happens when this center comes in and it's just, there's so many of these little kind of nuances and tweaks that we can potentially add to a scouting report um, that I think for a lot of athletes, it's overwhelming. And so uh, again, you know, the pros I think are better at it than the high school kids are going to be just because I think it's like, anything else, you know, you get better at, at, at doing it as time goes on, you get better at processing and using and employing the information. But um, yeah, I guess this is a long way of saying that I've been, I've been really, really trying to talk coaches into these very, very sparse scouting reports. 
And the whole idea is we're going to have some defaults that we do always on our team within our defensive system or our offensive system. Um, I'm thinking primarily defensive systems now, but here are the defaults, the way that our defense always operates. And the only thing I'm going to tell you in the scouting report is if we're doing something different than the default. And now instead of telling you the 50 things that we're going to do, it's, uh, you know, or we're not going to do, it's, hey, here's just operate like we always do, like we've always trained, but here are four or five things to keep in mind instead of 25 things. Right. Well, I guess to if we do look into Chris's manifesto, um, what are those priorities? What are those defaults? Like what are the, the few big things that are most important for uh, a coach to be giving his players? Yeah, you know, so um... – Within the defensive system that we really like, um, that we've been training forever, um, if you think about the block, for example, uh, we would say a default is that a wing blocker always helps uh, on good passes with quick attackers in their zone. So if there's a good pass and there's a middle attacking in your zone, you're going to help. That's the default. And, uh, and so that's, once you know that, you know, then we can kind of set up, all right, what if we don't want you to help on that middle? You know, let's, let's let you just, you don't have to worry about them. Instead of helping, you're just going to go load up on the pin hitter and be good out there on them. And so that would be, for example, an exception to the default. And, uh, and then just their spacing, uh, how far apart they are when they start defending uh, is kind of a default. And then in the back row, um, you know, we've got these kind of base defensive positions that we put our athletes in and where they get to uh, on the court on a particular kind of set, there's some kind of general rules and we would just say, all right, we're going to do this. And if there's an opponent that, for example, we like our line defenders to play off the line a little bit, not directly on the line, like, we don't want their foot on the line. We want uh, a down-the-line defender to be probably an arm's length off the line because what you find if you chart lots of hitters, almost nobody paints the line. They all hit the ball kind of that goes down the line but comes inside the court a little bit. And so if, if for example, there were an athlete, uh, an attacker that really painted that line, that hit it true line every single time, that would that would be all right instead of being off the line which is our default, you're going to, you're going to shuffle all the way over and get all the way over to the line and uh, just some things like that. And so um, I think the important thing is just understanding what the default should be for your team that are appropriate to your level and appropriate to the kinds of offenses that you're typically going to see. And so at BYU and when you're coaching the men's collegiate level, you're worried about, uh, you know, big attacks out of the middle of the court. Um, you're worried about good middles. You're worried about good pin hitters. And so you have to account for all of that within your system. If you're coaching at a girl's high school level, for example, the middle's probably got a substantially reduced role in the offense and uh, in terms of volume of set. And, there, and you don't have to contend very much, uh, if at all, with back row attack. And in fact, 
if I'm coaching a girls' high school team, I never want to block a back row attack. I want to let them have a free swing. We'll go dig it. Basically, they'll screw it up a bunch, as it turns out. But uh, in any case, understanding at my level, what should the defaults be? And then training those really well in practice. And then now I've got this really, really kind of robust uh, group of kids that can read and react and are free to move based on what they see within this system that we've dialed in really tight. And, uh, and now I just have to give you a few little, ex- you know, exceptions every time we play. And I just think it, it makes for just better quality volleyball because now um, I'm, I'm letting my athletes use their instinct and there's all of this kind of, you know, learning that's been deeply embedded uh, down in their motor programs, as opposed to I'm going to play with stuff that's happening up in my cerebral cortex, you know, that I'm, that's, that's, um, I'm taking all this executive control over my play and we don't want them to have to do that. We want them to just play on instinct based on all these, all this good training that they've put in over the years. And I don't know, this might be an impossible question, but I'm going to try it. So if, if you um, say your strength is serving line to line, that's your, your best serve, but uh, the opponent's better passers there and their weaker passer is in the cross court. Um, you know, where do you kind of lean playing towards your strengths or attacking the other team's weaknesses? Yeah, I think that uh, it depends on the level. I would say if I'm coaching anything in the juniors level, I'm almost always going to just execute my best plays. You know, I'm Mm -hmm. just going to play to my strengths. And once you kind of get beyond that level, if you get to the collegiate level, now you've got to start being able to exploit their weaknesses to some degree. And so you can't have, that's one of the things that you find is you can't have, unidimensional players they can't just have a line-to-line serve even if it is their best maybe it's their best by just a a shade you know but i also have a really good kind of deep cross-court serve that goes you know over the you know left back passers right shoulder you know i got i've got three or four really good serves that i can execute and and you find that at the junior level attackers end up being really, really patterned on the degree to which they can successfully, um, you know, evolve and become less patterned and have more range um, as they get, you know, as, as their experience goes on and they get better. That's, that's one of the things that I think really, really differentiates, you know, younger players or players that aren't uh, progressing from, players that actually have the, the opportunity to, you know, go places and get better and, and increase in value is they, they, they don't just have one good of anything. They have lots of good of everything they do. They can do a lot of things really well. And I guess in just the, I guess your history of coaching, have you ever been surprised by a scouting report or something that the numbers showed that maybe ran counter to what your, your eye saw? Do you think of any examples? Yeah, no, not so much. You know, uh, the one the one time that we really got surprised by what a team did 
relative to their scouting report was Irvine in a national championship match. We played in 2013, um, played them in the final, and we beat them twice during the se- during the regular season, as I recall. And we had them scouted. It's you know the national championship match, and so you're working your tail off to make sure uh, no stone is left unturned. And we had them dialed in. I thought it was as good a report as you know you could imagine. We had our guys really well prepped, and then they were smart enough to play uh, differently than than they had the entire year. They played a different offense. They 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 distributed the ball differently on good passes and perfect passes than they had the entire year, and it was a it was a really risky move, a gutsy move because it's. Like, hey, look, this is what we've been good at all year long, but in order to beat BYU, we need to do this stuff that we haven't really done before to to play in a way that we that we really haven't. And, um, it, you know, NIF is, is <laughs> crazy enough to try something like yeah. that. And uh, there just aren't a lot of coaches that will, you know, like, hey, we're going to do something a little bit there. And um, I give them a lot of credit for, for I don't know, having the wherewithal the to do that. But that was maybe the only time in my career where it's like, yeah, this doesn't look anything like what we prepped for. Um, they're, 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 they're playing a different game than what, that, what they have all season. That's mm. pretty bold. Yeah. <laughs> um, so if you were giving advice to a high school or club juniors coach, uh, there's one head coach and maybe limited technology. Um, what kind of scouting reports should they be creating? What does that look like? Yeah, I, I would say my my single biggest piece of advice is create a defensive system that allows your players to um, – we talk in these coaching clinics about how volleyball is a visual motor game, meaning the visual inputs are as as important almost as how the player moves mechanically their ability to see and process the game on the other side of the net is as big a part of their successes of, you know, in performing the skill as the way that they execute the mechanics. And so you have to do a couple of things. You've got to train your players in practice to see the game and now react. And so you have to have a practice environment where they get a lot of visual information so they get a lot of game speed game velocity game environment looking kind of reps so that they're able to actually put down some of those visual patterns and so that their pattern recognition becomes really strong and uh if they're not seeing that very often in practice then it's going to be tough when the match comes for them to be able to to kind of access that information or to respond with good instincts and uh, so that's number one is create a practice environment that that helps them develop that. And then number two, um, put them in a system that is simple enough that they don't have a lot of kind of rules about what's going to happen. If this, then that else, this, you know, just so that they're not having to go through this, uh, this kind of long list of, of you know, if thens. Every single time there's a play that happens, well, if this happens, then that, then, then I move here and then I shift there. And it's just, no, I'll tell you what, just stand in this spot, see what's going on, and then go make this good volleyball play based on 
your experience and what you see. And, uh, and those would be, if I could have a team that could do that, I could almost get away with not having much of a report at all. But, uh, but one of the assumptions you can make about almost every hitter at the junior level is that they're a cross court hitter, that their strength is going to be in the angle. It's going to be, you're going to hit it to the middle of the, of, you know, to the middle of the court or a little bit more angle. So middle of zone six to zone five. And uh, that's a pretty safe assumption. Every hitter is going to hit it there. Uh, And then if there's a hitter that isn't, then we can start talking about maybe we want to do something different. And so that would be it. You know, if you're a high school coach, um, train in an environment where where they get to see a lot of volleyball and develop those skills create a defensive system that allows them to play like that. So that they're not encumbered by all these rules. And then, uh, you know, if there are a few exceptions that you feel are important enough to call to your athlete's attention, um, to get them out of the defaults or to, you know, Hey, we really, uh, I know I don't want to put all these, you know, mental burdens on you, but this is important enough that I think we should, uh, burden you with it. Then, you're just going to give them these few exceptions. Yeah, I really like the concept of defaults and then kind of when you would stray away from that. Thanks for listening to another episode of Coach Your Brains Out. You can follow us on Twitter at Coach Your Brain or on Facebook, facebook.com slash Coach Your Brains Out. If you like the show, please write us a review and spread the word.